Amen. Well, hey, if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to join me in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 22 today. And even as we're beginning a brand new year, we're going to be following a little different sequence in our preaching series this year. Last year, we were in the Revised Common Lectionary, which provided four different texts every Sunday. I'd choose one of them, and we'd preach our way through following that guide. We're going to change it up a little bit this year and move over to the Narrative Lectionary. We did this a number of years ago. Uh, It's a four-year cycle. There's one year dedicated to each one of the Gospels, and it begins in Genesis with creation and attempts to follow the entire arc of the salvation story through the Gospels, into the epistles, and even into the future as we anticipate uh, one day spending eternity with our God. We're joining it midstream today, though, so we're in the Gospel of Mark, and for the next number of months, we're going to work our way through that Gospel, analyzing the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, all of his teachings about the kingdom of God, and then what our role is participating in that as well. So we're beginning today in Mark chapter 2, and verses 1 to 22 is a rather large chunk, and so I'm just going to read it as we make our way through the message. But as we begin, would you join me now in a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to be gathered together in worship today. We're thankful for this beautiful space to be in. We're thankful for the people surrounding us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're thankful for your presence here with us. In these next few minutes, as we turn our attention toward the Gospel of Mark, I ask that you give every one of us eyes to see just what you want us to see in this text. I pray you give us hearts that are soft and ready to receive whatever you choose to reveal. And I pray you give us conviction that is strong so we can apply what we see and understand to the way we live every day. I pray all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text gets underway with a little bit of an analysis of forgiveness and healing. I'll read now from verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And so he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus returns to Capernaum at the beginning of this particular passage. His healing and preaching tour of Galilee had come to a close, and it was that tour that began his earthly ministry. He was announced, he got underway, but now he's moving into a new phase. And interestingly, Mark says that Jesus came home in doing so. 
Capernaum became the home base of his ministry. Did Jesus have a house in Capernaum? Probably not. We don't have any indications of him being a homeowner during his earthly ministry, but he probably had partners in ministry in Capernaum where he could stay every time he was there preparing for the next leg of his ministry. We're told that when he came home, a large crowd gathered, and that's because he had already developed a reputation, especially for healing. And so people gathered to see what was next and to hear what Jesus had to say. But it's notable here that Jesus preached the word to them. His ministry was not going to be just about miracles and just about healing. It was inaugurating the kingdom of God, and so he had things to say about the way of life that being a Christian would be. In the midst of all of his four friends arrive carrying another friend who was paralyzed, and it sets the stage for this amazing story. No way for them to get into where Jesus is, impatient enough that they didn't want to wait, climbing onto a roof, digging through that earthen roof, and lowering their friend right at Jesus' feet as he's in the midst of teaching the people. What an incredible story. And we're told when Jesus saw their faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. But where was their profession of faith? Jesus recognized their persistence and ingenuity as faith in this story. And what does their faith mean? Did you notice it doesn't say he had faith, but that they had faith? It's been suggested that perhaps their faith was enough. Do you think they came seeking forgiveness? Was that the goal? Was that the reason they dug through the roof and lowered this friend down so Jesus could say, son, your sins are forgiven? I wonder what it must have been like for him to hear that. All of us want to hear that our sins are forgiven, but if we are paralyzed and we are laid before a miracle worker, that's not what we're hoping for, is it? But Jesus chooses to express this because it was what he needed most and because Jesus knew the interaction to come would teach everyone about his power and about the importance of forgiveness. Jesus is challenged by his critics, the religious leaders, Only God can forgive sins. You are blaspheming if you say otherwise. But look at verse 9. Jesus offers this brilliant question, which would be easier? What was easiest for me to do? One commentator said that Jesus performed the miracle they could see to prove the one they could not see. Performed the miracle they could see to prove the one they could not see. In the end, everyone in that room that day knew the power that Jesus possessed. That moves us on to our second section, which is dinner with sinners in verses 13 through 17. I'll begin reading in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." As we move into this next scene, we see Jesus calling Levi a tax collector to follow after him. 
And as we've talked about before in the Gospels, the immediate response of some to Jesus, it could be because of how compelling Jesus was. It could be some supernatural intervention. But it also could be, and probably is most likely, that there was some type of relationship already, some familiarity between Levi and Jesus, or at least the ministry of Jesus. So he was primed and ready when the time came to be called by Jesus to follow after him. Levi's vocation is significant to this story. He was a tax collector, which meant that Herod Antipas was his boss, that he worked for the Roman Empire, and because of that, he was viewed by his own people as a traitor. Often these tax collectors were dishonest. They would collect everything the Roman Empire required, but they would add on top of it an additional fee that they would keep for themselves, which made them outcasts among their own people. Well, Jesus and Levi end up sharing dinner at Levi's house, and Levi has invited a houseful of friends to be with him, people who are just like him, tax collectors and sinners. Once again, Jesus is challenged by his critics. This time they ask his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? To them, this was a perfectly sensible question. Those who were serious about God were supposed to withdraw from the riffraff, weren't they? To Jesus, the question was offensive. He come not for the healthy, but for the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Not only does Jesus' kingdom have room for sinners, they are the very people he came to love and rescue. Which begs the question, why does today's church continue to struggle with this? Continue to reject people who don't have their lives together? Continue to play us and them, I have my stuff together and they don't. Why do they sin so much and I'm so good? We divide ourselves, sometimes out of an honest desire to please God. But in our pursuit of God, if we're not careful, we can become what one author calls accidental Pharisees. We don't wanna be the bad guys in this story, but in our pursuit of God, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves in that place, judging others rather than remembering that all of us are guests at this table, all of us have been rescued by grace, all of us are in the same boat, called by God to enjoy this unconditional love that he offers to all of us. Finally, in verses 18 to 22 this morning, we have some questions about fasting. I'll begin reading in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Our last scene today is introduced by a question for Jesus. Why aren't your disciples fasting? Jesus answers in verses 19 through 20, and it's a fascinating answer, but what does it mean? Who is the bridegroom? Why will they be taken? Well, the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom. This becomes a picture of celebration. 
You would not mourn. You would not be contrite at a wedding reception. And Jesus says the celebration is underway. This is no time for fasting and no time for grief. This is similar to the observance of Sundays during Lent. We've talked about this before. On February 14th, we're going to begin the Lenten season with our Ash Wednesday worship. That begins a season of 40 days that lead all the way to Easter Sunday. It's a time of contrition, a time of reflection, a time of repentance in the life of Christians. And yet, every single one of the Sundays that we gather during Lent is a celebration of resurrection. We are not contrite. We are not grieving on those Sundays because every Sunday is a resurrection celebration. One commentator has suggested that Jesus' presence was a perpetual Sunday for his disciples. And so there wasn't to be any repentance or fasting in that time, but rather celebration. Now Jesus' physical presence will be taken from his disciples in a short time, and then there will be time for fasting. But for us, we are always in Jesus' presence today because of the Holy Spirit. So we live in the blessing of perpetual Sunday as believers. Jesus finishes his answer by discussing new cloth patching, old garments, and new wine and old wineskins, which is very interesting imagery, but what does it mean? The common idea is that the old and the new do not work together. They are incompatible. But Jesus isn't telling us that we should stick to old wine or that we should make sure that we only use old fabric. Jesus is emphasizing instead the value of the new the kingdom of God has come. Everything has changed. It's Jesus himself in Revelation 21.5 who says, I am making everything new. If you pause and you make your way through the Gospels, you'll find that all of the friction that Jesus has with the religious leaders has to do with the newness of what he brings to the equation. They were participants in an old religion. They had fixed ways of doing things, the right ways in their eyes. And Jesus comes along and everything becomes new. He changes the way that they approach all of life. And like human beings, they resist the change. The same is true for us. We are rigid in our ways. We have certain ways that we do almost everything in life, including faith including church, including religion. And Jesus comes along, the Holy Spirit comes along and brings something new, something refreshing. But often we don't see it that way. We see it as change. We see it as forcing us out of our comfort zones and we too become resistant to the movement of God, resistant to what God wants to do in our lives and in our world, in our church, right here at Fletcher Hills. We're a post-COVID church all of us in this world today, in need of newness and refreshment and renovation more than we ever have been before. And yet I feel it in my soul as well that I want to pull the emergency brake at times when these new ideas are coming around, when it looks like the old way we did church, the old things we did as believers involved in a church aren't working anymore, aren't effective anymore, may not be what God's calling us to do anymore. And here comes Jesus bringing that newness, that freshness, that life, I pray every day that I would release my resistance, that I would be open to those new things, whatever they are, whatever the callings, whatever Jesus has in store. I see in his ministry and in the resistance that comes from the Pharisees the same pitfalls that we face in our world today. And it's my prayer that we as a church and each of us as individual believers will take heart at what Jesus says here about new wine, 
and new wineskins and the promise of what is to come, even if we don't know exactly what it is yet. It's a brand new year with brand new opportunities. And we, as Jesus' church in this place, have a chance to hear this word of encouragement, open ourselves to the movement of the Spirit, and see what God wants to do in, through, and among us. Are we on board with Jesus' new kingdom? Or have we become accidental Pharisees? These are good questions to think about. And I encourage all of us in this coming week to use the questions that are in our bulletin, to use these interactions that Jesus has had with these religious leaders, and to listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit as we prepare ourselves for the new thing that Jesus will do among us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, on the one hand, newness feels very fresh and very exciting. On the other hand, it makes us nervous. It makes us nervous when things change. It makes us nervous because we feel unstable. We feel unsure of what's coming next. And yet remind us in these moments, remind us in this season that you are the one prompting this change, that you are the one making things new, that you are the one transforming us and the world around us. We want to follow your lead. We want to be your disciples in this new year. Help us to relax. Help us to receive your refreshment. Help us to be open to your guidance. Protect us from rigidity. Protect us from the us and them game so that we can truly rejoice in the fact that all of us have been welcomed in by you, all of us refreshed by your grace, redeemed by your love. And as we enjoy that community that you've made for us, open our eyes to the future. Open our eyes to what you want of us and what you want to do through us so that we can follow you. We commit ourselves to you in this way, and we pray all of these things together now in your name. Amen.